Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, chapter 3. And we're going to be reading from verses 12 to 17. All right, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. The Apostle Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's commit this time to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together today By your grace and your mercy, you have brought us here to worship you together as your people. And as we come now to study your word, to understand what you have put in place for us, we pray that by your spirit you would illumine our hearts and minds, that we might understand, that we might grow in these truths, that we might be challenged and strengthened in them. Father, that our faith might... Uh, be strengthened, that we might persevere, and Father, that we might be emboldened to teach those around us about the good news of Jesus Christ, the only Saviour of this world. And in his name we pray. Amen. In uh, Psalm 78, verse 4, the psalmist declares this, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So God has bestowed upon his people the task of teaching the next generation about him. This was the way under the old covenant and it's no less important now that we are under the new covenant since we now know the fulfilment of God's promises and the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection uh, to save all who would repent and believe in him. This is the privilege and the responsibility of all who've been saved through faith in Christ by the grace of God alone. Uh, Yet there are different ways in which uh, we take part in this task. Uh, One of the central roles in which we do this is through parenthood. And as we gather today on Mother's Day, we think particularly of the the role of motherhood. In this most precious arena, uh, mothers have a crucial task of raising their children to know Jesus, the Saviour and Lord, and to teach them what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of of Christ. But it's important that we teach the whole story. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm sure we know we can list many uh, examples in our own uh, spheres. Uh, There are many accounts of people who are raised in a Christian home, but when they grew up and headed out into the world, 
uh, they face challenges that cause them to deny Christ. Uh, Like Jesus' parable of the soils, these people were like the thorny soil that had seed sown in it, but that seed uh, was choked to death by the thorns. Jesus said this to illustrate uh, those whose lives seem to be animated by the gospel, but when persecution came, they simply wilted away. We all need to be aware of what it really means to be a Christian. In his second letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul explained the reality of the Christian life. Uh, It's a a life that includes persecution. That's a reality that we must face. However, it's also a life that we're called to persevere in uh, because of the power that God grants to his people. Timothy needed this encouragement to continue to stand strong in Christ and for Christ These are the truths that our children need to understand. Uh, But these are also the truths that we need to regularly reflect upon ourselves so that by God's strength we can stand against whatever trials come to our faith and be led into glory by our great Saviour King. So here is the reality of the Christian life. It includes, first of all, the promise of persecution. Paul said to Timothy, verses 12 to 13, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This statement of Paul could not be any clearer. Uh, It reflects the words of Jesus himself too. Uh, Jesus Uh, spoke specifically to the apostles in Mark 13 verse 9 where he said but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them while these words were directed immediately to the apostles persecution is by no means limited to them Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 16 verse 24 anyone would come after me let them deny himself and take up his cross and follow me in the first century crucifixion was commonplace the romans used this torturous method of execution to deal specifically with those who sought to conspire against the emperor jesus was calling for a change of loyalty from the kingdom of rome to the kingdom of god But he was calling for a willingness to pay the cost of that transfer, even if it meant with one's own life. As Jesus went on in verse 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Earlier in Matthew 10, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The call to take up one's cross is a call to trust our eternal livelihood to Christ. By faith in his death and resurrection, God's wrath upon us is removed. And even if we die, our souls will be glorified with Christ and our bodies will be glorified as well at the final resurrection when Christ returns. And so with the psalmist, We can declare, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
That's Psalm 118. The Bible presents the reality that Christians will experience persecution for their faith to one degree or another. Yet there is the constant lure to ignore such teaching. I mean, we can think immediately of the wide reach that the prosperity gospel has across the world today. It's no gospel at all, uh, but people are drawn into the promises of health and wealth and happiness in this life now. It appeals to the flesh and the flesh laps it up. But it's far too easy to look at others. We need to shine the light on our own thoughts and actions. Are we willing to take up our cross and follow Christ? Or do we prefer being comfortable, safe and liked by the world? Do our lives reflect the rocky soil of Jesus' parable? Are we willing to concede at the first sign of trouble or are we willing to stand for Christ whatever may come? When Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy, he did so to encourage him to stand firm in the faith. In the opening chapter of the letter, he says in verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Timothy was experiencing fear and Paul was reminding him of the strength that we have in God. One of the ways he encouraged Timothy was to explain very clearly that If you want a trouble-free life, then you better look somewhere other than biblical Christianity. Nothing, nothing divides like the truth. And the word of God is a double-edged sword. Submitting to the gospel puts us eternally right with God. But in the meantime, it also puts us at odds with the system of this world. Paul's helping Timothy not to be discouraged that he is experiencing persecution for his faith. It's not that Timothy has failed, but that in preaching and teaching the word of God, Timothy has shone a light into the darkness, and those who live in darkness have reacted to being exposed. What Timothy is experiencing is no different to what Paul encountered. Still in chapter 1, Paul says in verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed about the testimony about our Lord, uh, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You see, Paul was in prison for preaching the gospel and he was facing imminent persecution. But he had a divine perspective because the gospel is about the person and work of the Saviour Christ Jesus, who, verse 10, who abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See, Paul was about to die. And if you read the letter, uh, he had also been abandoned by those who were once his co-workers, yet his focus was not on the suffering, uh, but on the glory of Christ and the hope that he had in him. If we come back to chapter 3, we're given a reality check. Verse 1 Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And what that difficulty looks like is filled out in the enormous vice list that follows in verses 2 to 9. This, these things are what the world will grow in. And of course, as people of the word, 
people set apart by the grace of God, not by our own works, but by God's grace alone, our desire to pursue holiness will immediately stand out in opposition and bring us into conflict. But listen, listen to Paul's words to Timothy from verses 10 and 11. He says this, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord so yet from them all the Lord rescued me. It's a call to persevere throughout the persecutions. It's a reminder that the Lord never left Paul alone throughout those struggles, uh, which should be an encouragement to Timothy as he faces his own opponents to the faith. It's not a promise, however, that God will always uh, bring us out of the persecution physically alive. Now, the Lord brought Paul through those events that he mentioned, but Paul was soon to be executed. In the great honour roll of faith in Hebrews 11, some of those people escaped death, but for others, verse 37 says, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. As Jesus said in Revelation 2 to the church in Smyrna, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now we need to remember that the people that were spoken about in those verses, they were real people. They just lived a few years earlier than we did. So Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The promise of persecution is a reality of the Christian life. And we do injustice to scripture if we ignore this. And we hinder our faith and the faith of others if we brush it aside. We need to be prepared for that. It's a truth we must teach. It's a truth we must hear. However, it's not the whole truth. You see, persecution is not the final word. If it was, that would be pretty depressing. But it's not the final word. As we're also called to persevere with firm assurance of our salvation in Christ Jesus. In verses 14 to 15, we see the plea of perseverance. The Christian life will include persecution, but it's a life that is also characterized by perseverance and endurance. True believers will persevere in the faith because the God who saved them is the God who sustains them. In John 6, 37, Jesus makes that plain when he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or what about the words of Paul in Romans 8, verse 30? And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Paul speaks of the the believer's future glorification in past tense, as if it already happened. And here is where the believer's confidence lies. Here is our reason to persevere through trial and persecution, because God is working in us to bring us to glory, and our future glory is assured. That's why Paul can say to the believers in Philippians 1 verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. These are objective truths. These are things that do not change for believers, even if our feelings do. See, our experience of this truth is subjective. It can, it can ebb and flow. But the reality of this truth is objective. It remains true no matter how we feel. But there are things that we can do to improve how we feel, to help us uh, be affirmed in these truths. There are things that we are called to do that can assist us. You see, our, our justification is the sole work of God, but our living the Christian life is accomplished by us through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You do the work, but it's God doing the work in you. So what things can we do that will enable us to persevere in the Spirit's strength? Paul gives Timothy two things to remember. What will help you persevere? Uh, Paul tells Timothy to remember who taught him the faith and to remember what taught him the faith. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. This is a call to remember who taught you the faith. This is certainly going to vary from person to person, the way we've experienced it. We might not be able to single out a particular person, but for Timothy, this was a very positive thing to focus on. Who taught him the gospel? Well, we don't actually need to guess because Paul refers to them at the beginning of the letter. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes this, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Timothy's mother and grandmother were instrumental in Timothy coming to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 16, we learn that Timothy came from a mixed family. His father was not a believer, But at some point, his mother had come to trust in Jesus as the Messiah. And for years, she'd been teaching her son, along with, it seems, the help of Timothy's grandmother as well. When Paul encountered this young man, he'd already developed a reputation in town, a reputation that caused Paul to want to take Timothy with him on his missionary journey. And it's hard to underestimate the importance that Timothy's mother had on his life. He wasn't going to learn about Christ from his father and so she took it solely upon herself to bring her son up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And when Paul came to town, her son had a strong foundation in the faith and was ready to embark on this important gospel work. Whether you're in a mixed marriage uh, or a marriage in which both of you are believers as Christian parents, it's our responsibility to teach our children about Christ. It's for Christian dads and mums. 
However, today, because it is Mother's Day and because Timothy was significantly aided by his female relatives, I thought it appropriate to to draw out for a few minutes the importance of a mother's teaching. In Exodus 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment is given by God. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is reiterated under the New Covenant when Paul says in Ephesians 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so respect is to be given equally to both parents. But of course that respect also signifies a responsibility on both parents as they care for their children. Proverbs 1, Solomon writes to his son, but words that all believers can feel the significance of as applied to their own lives. Proverbs 1, verses 8 to 9, he says this, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. That's beautiful imagery there. And here we see the immense value of a mother's teaching. And there's a particular focus in this teaching. See, in verse 7, Solomon tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Clearly, the teaching is not simply worldly wisdom, but wisdom that flows from a right relationship with God and wisdom that points one's children to God. At the end of the book of Proverbs, in chapter 31, there's that beautiful description of the excellent wife. In verse 26, says, She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. But again, this wisdom flows from her relationship to the Lord. Because if we look to verse 30, we're told, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is greatly to be praised. To fear the Lord is to give him the reverence that he alone deserves, the triune God, which can only happen by trusting in his word, a word that points us to Jesus Christ. A woman who fears the Lord will acknowledge her call to pass on the necessity of that godly reverence to her children. So Christian mothers are not simply to pass on secular knowledge to their children, but more importantly, spiritual knowledge if we jump into the new testament uh, the apostle paul gives further understanding about the importance of a mother's teaching in his first letter to timothy paul says this chapter 2 verse 15 yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control now the previous verses explain the impact of the original fall into sin and the deception and transgression experienced by Eve. But verse 15 is a sign of great hope. Yes, Eve transgressed God by eating the fruit and by usurping Adam's authority and seeking to take the lead. And of course, we know that Adam sinned by eating the fruit and not stepping up in the role that God had assigned him either. Both were guilty in different ways. But what we see here in 1 Timothy 2.15 is... The understanding that salvation was not removed as a possibility for Eve. 
in submitting herself back into the task that God had assigned for her, which is summarized under the heading of childbirth, she would know the blessings of God. The switch between the the singular to the plural, that is from the she to the they, shows that this is the case for all Christian women. Paul's not saying that you have to have a baby in order to be saved, but that childbearing summarizes all the good things that God has set aside for women. It's a specific way of what we've already seen in Philippians 2 about working out your salvation in fear and trembling. Salvation, of course, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But as men and women live out that salvation in different ways, sorry, but as men and women, we do live out that salvation in different ways that God has set in place for us. And all those things listed there in verse 15 are evidence that salvation has occurred. These are the fruit of a saved life. A mother spends far more intimate time with her children, generally, than the father uh, when these kids are growing up. And through her teaching and through her godliness, she can have a tremendous impact upon them. And through the influence that she has on her children, she can influence the world as her children grow up and serve God in various ways. The world recognises this very clearly, even if we don't. That's why those seeking to push the moral revolution further and further away from God's good design are continuously trying to aim their focus at children. They recognise very clearly that if you can invest into children now, they will be the ones to push the ideology further when they grow up. And if you don't believe me, you can just read some of the titles of books that are now being presented into uh, younger grades and even to kindergarten. Quite disturbing. As Christians, we should not miss this. A battle is on for the hearts of our children. And we must do all we can to train them up in the Lord. Paul's teaching here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a call for mothers to fight for their children because that is what God in his good design has prepared them for. Now one thing further we should consider about a mother's teaching is that in the church it's not simply confined to biological children either. We are saved into the body of Christ and so we have many brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and of course sons and daughters in the faith. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul referred to Timothy as his beloved child. Another young man whom Paul thought of in this way was Titus. In Titus chapter 1 verse 4, Paul says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. And it's in the letter written to Titus that Paul also explains the familial nature of the church. In chapter 2, Paul addresses the older women and says they are to teach what is good and so train the young women. This doesn't limit an older woman being able to teach boys and young men who are still under the care of their own mothers at home, but it does focus the attention on women mentoring women in the church. I mean, who is better equipped to teach a young woman what it means to be a godly woman than a godly woman who has walked the same path already? So to the women in the church, whether you are physically a mother or not, Whether your children are young or they've left the home, 
In the church family, you will always have daughters in the faith whom you are called to teach the ways of God. There is always purpose. There's always opportunity. And there's always a way to serve the Lord by helping others grow in their faith and godliness. The influence that we can have for the good of others is truly amazing. And that's why the first thing Paul does in helping Timothy persevere is to get him to remember who taught him. But the second thing Timothy is to remember is something infinitely more substantial. He says, knowing how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, it is a call to remember what taught you the faith. People can be of tremendous help to our faith, but believers are at the same time just and sinners. However, the word of God is perfect. Psalm 12 verse 6 tells us, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Proverbs 30 verse 5 also says that every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. When Paul calls Timothy to remember the sacred writings, to remember the scriptures, he's encouraging him to persevere by trusting in something that is completely trustworthy. Paul calls Timothy to persevere in the faith because he learned about the salvation that is in Jesus Christ by reading the scriptures. And the scriptures are true. That's what sets the scriptures apart. They are what is referred to as a special revelation from God. You see, we have a a general revelation from God in the creation around us. Psalm 19 tells us that. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We can't, with any honesty, look at the world around us and not see God's fingerprints anywhere. And that goes for every single person that's ever lived on this planet. And I say that because that is exactly what Paul says in Romans 1 when he indicts people for not giving glory to God. Romans 1 verse 20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The problem with the general revelation, however, is that it has no saving power. It shows that God exists. But the fact that people turn their backs on God, or as Paul says, they turn the truth of God into a lie, it means creation simply acts to convict us. And no one is without excuse for failing to worship God. And creation doesn't point to a saviour either. We need a special revelation from God to make the way to salvation known. And that is exactly what the scriptures do. That's why if we refer again to Psalm 19, that King David, after he'd sung the praises for God and his creation... He spends the rest of the psalm praising God's word. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. And on he goes. We'll be enabled to persevere in the faith with greater strength the more we come to view the Bible as the writers of the Bible do. We can trust in Christ Jesus with boldness because we learn about the salvation Christ has bought for his people as we read the pages of scripture. 
And because the Bible is God's word, then we know that the promises are true and trustworthy and we can stake our lives on them. That's Paul's encouragement to Timothy and by extension, it's his encouragement to us. And so while the Christian life involves persecution, we have a reason to follow the plea of perseverance. But Paul's not done yet. He's introduced the trustworthiness of the scriptures, but now he expands upon it. And in these words, we see that the Christian life also involves the provision of power. We've already seen that the sacred writings are true and trustworthy, but here we see why. All scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture is trustworthy because it is breathed out by God. It is expired from him. And so scripture is pure and true because it comes from God, the one who is pure and true. In Titus 1 verse 2, Paul speaks of God who never lies. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6 verse 18 that it is impossible for God to lie. And the New Testament statements are no different from what's proclaimed in the Old Testament. Numbers 23 verse 19 declares, God is not man that he should lie. We can trust the Bible because the God who breathed it out is trustworthy. Now, when Paul spoke of all scripture, we need to recognize two things. First, all scripture encompass the Old and the New Testament, even though the New Testament had not yet been completed. For instance, Paul certainly thought of his own letters as God's word because we read instances where he commanded that his letters be read in the churches. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 27, he wrote, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Secondly, All scripture means every single word of every single sentence of every single book we have in the canon, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Jesus attested to this understanding when he declared in Matthew 5, 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the whole of the Bible is inspired by God. And if the whole thing, every word is inspired by God, then it is completely inerrant. That is, it does not lie. This is truly amazing considering the Bible didn't just drop out of the sky but was written by a man over many years. Yet how could it be inerrant if it was written by redeemed yet still imperfect men? Well, the Apostle Peter explains that in his second letter. He writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here we see that the Holy Spirit superintended the work to ensure that it was the Word of God. He worked through the different personalities and circumstances and experiences of all these men, So that while they wrote, it was his words that they wrote. So there is enormous encouragement. We understand that the words of scripture are really the words of God. 
Now, look at the blessing that comes from God's word when we read it. Paul says it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And the simplest way to understand these four aspects is to see them as relating to belief and to behavior. Scripture is useful for our belief in that it teaches us truth and it refutes error. But scripture is also useful for our behavior in that it corrects our sinful actions and it trains us in righteous living. Scripture is useful for developing our creed and our conduct. The well-known theologian John Stott once asked this, and it's a challenge to all of us. He said, Do we hope, either in our lives or in our teaching ministry, to overcome error and grow in truth, to overcome evil and grow in holiness? Then it is to Scripture that we must turn, for Scripture is profitable for these things. But lest we think that by the word profitable, Paul means that the scriptures are simply one of any number of other things that are profitable for developing our creed and conduct. Listen to how he finishes this sentence. What's the purpose of the scriptures? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, man of God is a technical phrase for the official preacher. Remember that Paul was writing specifically to Timothy. However, if it's true as it relates to Timothy, then it's equally true as it relates to any believer, whether they be in an official ministry position, whether they be a man or a woman, whether they be young or old, it doesn't matter. So what then is the purpose of Scripture as it relates to all people, all believers? That it might make them complete, equipped for every good work. Now, does that seem like Paul is placing Scripture on par with other useful aids for spiritual growth? It certainly does not. This is the sufficiency of Scripture. It's the only thing that can make believers complete, equipped for every good work. The sufficiency of Scripture is a doctrine that does not mean Scripture tells us everything. I mean, you can't read the scriptures and learn how to be a motor mechanic. You can't read the scriptures and learn how to be a neurosurgeon. But what are the scriptures designed to do? They tell us everything we need for salvation, sanctification and service. Other sources outside the Bible may assist us to think through these matters. For instance, the church is now 2,000 years old and uh, so we have an enormous line of faithful and wise witnesses who have gone before us. And so if we come to a text and we, we come up with an interpretation and it stands completely against the line of history of interpretation, perhaps we might have some humility in the people that have come before us. We can pick up a commentary or a book on a certain theological issue and be greatly helped. But the words we find in those books are not on par with Scripture. They are not breathed out by God. They are not without error. Yet if all we had was the Bible, we would have everything we need for learning about salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ. We would have everything we need for growing in our sanctification, understanding how God wants us to live before him. And we would have everything we need for knowing how God calls us to serve him and those around us. What's more, 
These words from Paul teach us that we do not need to wait for any further audible revelation from God. God has spoken. It is written and the canon is closed. We can avoid getting ourselves into all sorts of trouble when we hear people saying, God gave me a word for you. The Lord told me to tell you. Now the Holy Spirit can certainly impress upon our hearts to share with someone a scripture that might help. And we have to recognise sometimes people just don't get their categories, uh, don't express their categories very well. But let's be clear. God is no longer audibly speaking to his people. However, God has spoken. And the wonderful thing is we all have equal access to this beautiful word and all we need to do is open the cover and read and know that this is a living word in which the Holy Spirit, as we read, will illumine our hearts and minds to hear and know that it is God's word. So again, I ask, do you have a view of scripture that scripture teaches about itself? At the end of the book of Hebrews, uh, we get a glimpse of how Timothy responded to these words of Paul. Chapter 13, verse 23, the writer says, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. It seems Timothy was encouraged and he stood firm, even to the point of imprisonment for his faith. When we come to understand these truths, uh, we can see the provision of power that God has granted his people. We will face persecution to one degree or another, but we can persevere because in his word we are given all we need for life and godliness. And the scriptures are able to make us complete, equipped for every good work. We need to see the reality of the Christian life every day. But as we come here on Mother's Day, we can see the importance of helping our children understand what Christianity is about. This is obviously a task for all parents, but mothers play a special role as they have such an intimate connection to their children when they're little. Mothers, please don't underestimate the impact that you can have on your children. Help them understand the gospel while they're young. Help them understand the reality of the Christian life so that when they encounter persecution, they can persevere. Help them to see the power of the scriptures. Help them to trust God's word by setting an example. Your love for the word will help them to love the word. Husbands, make sure you are encouraging your wives in this godly task. And the best way you can encourage is to make sure you are setting the example yourself as the head of the family. Does your family know that you love the word? And of course, this is not just a a call for parents, it's a call for grandparents as well. And moreover, it's a call for the whole church. For we are the body of Christ. And here we have many mothers and fathers brothers and sisters and sons and daughters in the faith. The writer of Hebrews gives this command to the church in chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As Paul sought to encourage his son in the faith, may we too be encouraged by the truths he presented. And may we then be diligent to encourage others to come to faith in Christ and to persevere in the Christian life with God's empowerment, a life that will one day end in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom of Paul's words and his pastoral care for his son in the faith, Timothy. We thank you for the encouragement that those words were to Timothy and uh, helping him to stand firm in Christ and for Christ. Father, as we uh, read these words or have read these words today and as we think about them during this week, may we be encouraged in our own faith. May we be uh, challenged as we seek to teach those around us about the gospel and the, the wider truths of scripture and the reality of, of your trustworthiness that we can stake our lives on the promises of scripture because it is your word. Help us particularly as we think about our role as parents and for mothers on this day. Father, enable our mothers here. Spur them on to teach their children to know and to love you. Help us as families to encourage this. Help us as a church family to do this with our spiritual mothers and fathers and sons and daughters here. May we seek to honour you in all that we do and may we know that the God who saved us is the one who sustains us to the end. Amen.